everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the case of Michael Gaines, who was 18 years old when he was wrongly convicted out of Oklahoma. He has been in prison wrong convicted for over 20 years. And we have as guests today, Bree and Melissa Hurry, who are both advocates uh, for him. So welcome to our show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. So um, can you guys kind of give us kind of a short rundown of uh, the background of the case and uh, what happened and start from there? Sure. Um, so Michael was hanging out with a group of friends when he was 18. And I don't really want to call them a group of friends. One guy he actually knew, which was the driver of the car. He, um, They were just riding around. That's typical things that they do in the town of Lawton. Um, pretty much they, the older two gentlemen who were driving and the passenger wanted to commit a robbery and they needed uh, people to come with them. So they asked Michael and another gentleman to ride with them. Um, they chose to lace a blunt with PCP without their knowledge and gave it to them and then utilized them once they were under the influence to knock on, Michael knocked on the door. And then um, the other two gentlemen in the car ran into the apartment, robbed it, ended up um, taking the life of someone and then injuring another, the actual homeowner. Michael ended up getting a life without parole. Um, where the two guys who actually mastermind and put it together, they ended up getting um, a 20-year deal for robbery. And and so, you know, how was it that they came to um, focus on Michael? So um, Daniel, which is um, the other gentleman that actually was the passenger, Michael did not know him. Daniel, Daniel and Deontay, um, were arrested and Daniel was told that if he didn't have someone pretty much to take the place of the position he played that he was going to get the death penalty so at that point that's when he implicated Michael's name and Michael pretty much became guilty for Daniel's part of the crime. Did this go to trial or how, how did this work? They did not go to trial. Uh, Michael wanted to go to trial but his lawyer at the time when he came on he advised Michael that he did not want him to go to trial. That was actually to kind of cater to what I do believe is what the um, other attorneys that came to a 20-year plea deal for their for the, his co-defendants. So at that point, Michael pretty much didn't have a choice. 
They did offer Michael a 20-year deal just to get him to plead a robbery. But once he did plead to that um, 20-year deal for robbery, he at that point, he ended up being told there was a murder that took place. So he was going to be responsible for the murder and the robbery, uh, which he was kind of blindsided about that because he had no idea that was happening. So, um, And at what point did you get involved in this case and how did you come to get involved? Um, whenever I worked um, at a previous job, someone had kind of mentioned it to me and I looked into it. I come from a family with, of law enforcement, so I was just interested in seeing And Once I saw it, I realized that something wasn't right and I reached out and then I would started advocating for him. And, and in what way? I mean, what types of things have you done on his behalf? Um, we've written people um, to try to get support for him. He, um, we've been contacted by people also as well. Um, there has been talk about possibly trying to get him a docu-series. We've done rallies for him. Um, I've tried to contact people. We're trying to get a decent support group together for him to just help enforce what we feel is a pretty nasty injustice on his part. And what's Michael's background? I mean, I know he was 18 when this happened and that was in 2003, but, um, you know, does he, um, that means he's not quite 40 yet. Does he have family? Does he have uh, a support system or is he kind of by himself at this point? Um, he does have family. They are involved as much as they can be at this point. Um, Pretty much his support comes from myself and other people who choose to want to see the injustice and back him up and support him. And Melissa, how did you get involved in this case? I got involved, um, like I said, I had saw Bree's advocacy for, for Michael, and I was already involved in advocacy in another Oklahoma case, Julius Jones. So when I, um, when I saw Michael's petition, I read it, and, and I said, well, this, you know, this sounds familiar because... Not only that, but I, um, I study wrongful convictions and the components that contribute to them. And so when you have a case like Michael and he was not the one who initiated the robbery, he was not the one who, who killed the, the man that died, but gets the harshest sentence for it. It, you know, perjured testimony, um, misconduct, you know, all those things that, that now are the top contributors to wrongful convictions. And it just, his case really stood out to me that, you know, plus his, the age of 18 and under the influence of, of PCP that he didn't know was there. Like, um, you know, it just how somebody could be sentenced to life without parole under those circumstances is concerning to someone who's involved in the criminal justice system as I am, but it should be to, to everybody. So that is why I try to do what I can to, to help um, at least get the case seen, you know, try to break down some of the, help people to understand how these types of cases happen. Why would somebody plead guilty to something they didn't do? And then, you know, receive a life without parole sentence. There's, there's a lot of things that go on and this case is a prime example of it. It seems very odd um, that the attorney would recommend that he plead, um, you know, to life without parole. I mean, unless he was potentially facing the death penalty, it doesn't seem like there's any advantage to pleading to life without the. But, but that's what they do. They threaten with the death penalty. 
so in, in obviously in states where they practice the death penalty, I, I, I was, you know, studying some, some statistics and when um, 18 to 25 year olds um, show up prominently in false and coerced confessions. So you have an 18 year old who doesn't know the law and doesn't know his rights and you're threatening him and his family with the death penalty. So you're basically giving an 18 year old a choice of, do you want us to kill you or do you want to die in prison? So that's basically how that happens. And where are things now? I mean, uh, have they attempted any appeals or in some, some states, if you plead, you, you're not even eligible for an, uh, a direct appeal, but uh, has there been any post-conviction work done on this case? There has. Michael has tried to um, file a post-conviction. He has not been successful with that at this time. He received new information, which was from Deontay, the actual driver and mastermind behind this crime. And he wrote him a letter and let him know that he had um, given him PCP without his knowledge. And that was never known. He didn't know that at the time. And he just found that out. So he did use that as new evidence. But um, trying to file on his own, I don't know that he was able to actually execute what he needed to say the proper way. So he did not have a successful post-conviction at this time. And and so he doesn't have the resources um, or the legal um, support to be able to file a post-conviction uh, review. No, Has the doesn't. Innocence Project been interested in this kind of case at all? He has written to them, but because they can only take so many cases at this time, he hasn't even been contacted about it. So, no. That's what I'm going to say, because they haven't re actually written him back or anything, but he has filled out the proper paperwork and sent it in to them. So. And has he ever gotten any kind of post-conviction hearing? No, he was asking for a new evidentiary hearing and they did not that pretty much when he sent it back to the district court where he it started, they pretty much shut that down right out the gate. So. Melissa, can you talk about some of the issues you see with this conviction? Um, I see issues with, um, I mentioned a, a minute ago about the um, two individuals, Daniel and Deontay, who um, obviously were the, if you will, masterminds of the whole, what was going on, and they're the ones who entered the house. But they both had private attorneys. They did. And so they're the ones that got the deals. Everybody points the finger at Michael and he takes the fall. And while the people, the, the men who, you know, really initiated this and really committed the crime have private attorneys and they work out 20 year deals, Michael should not still be in jail with these men free. Um, and is it your contention that Michael is innocent or that he's innocent of the murder charge? Well, he's definitely innocent of the murder charge. Michael didn't have a gun. They never found a murder weapon on Michael. Michael never took anyone's life. Um, I know that under the felony murder rule here in Oklahoma, they feel like if you were there when it took place, you're just as guilty as the person who did it. So I guess if we're going to go under that sort of ruling, then 
you can say that he shouldn't have been there. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. But I most certainly do know that Michael's innocent of committing any kind of murder and actually any sort of robbery, because once the investigation took place, they never found anything on Michael, not any of the robbery items, nor any weapons. Yeah, and if he was incapacitated uh, through the action of somebody else, then he's not even necessarily responsible for whatever actions he did. Right. Yeah, we don't even know that he was—he would have been culpable. You know what I mean? Having been under the influence and at, you know at, at his age, and I just you know it's it certainly not. Um, it, it makes no sense that he's been in in prison for almost twenty years. And, and the men who are actually responsible for this or not. So it sounds like what he needs is a legal team that can raise these issues in the appropriate venue. Right. And it also sounds like he doesn't have the support network or the resources to be able to do that. That is correct. I mean, that is a work in progress for him. Um, but if he couldn't afford an attorney before he went in and had to have a public defender, it's kind of hard for him to afford a paid attorney now to actually help him with something like that. So. Absolutely. Um, and you had mentioned that there might be a documentary about him. Um, can you tell us anything about that at this point? Um, well, it's just something that I've been contacted about. They want to um, look into seeing where we can point out where Michael is not the person responsible for the crime and showing that he does deserve some sort of justice in his case. And Melissa, um, you know, can, um, what do you see as kind of the most compelling aspects of this? I see that in my opinion, this is a case of um, somebody just needs to be convicted. We don't care who it is. And, you know, somebody just needs, you know, to pay for the crime, whether or not it was the person who committed it, we can get the most people to point the finger at somebody that, you know, will corroborate each other's stories, and we can get a conviction and, and that's all that matters. That's why a prosecutorial misconduct is one of the leading components to wrongful convictions, because it's that win at all costs attitude. Now, I'm not saying all prosecutors are that way, but we can't ignore the fact that wrongful convictions occur mostly now because of perjured testimony and misconduct, whether it be law enforcement or prosecutors. Um, you know, and people will argue that point and say, well, you know, DNA is advanced, so wrongful convictions don't occur anymore like they used to. Wrongful convictions don't occur because of DNA evidence anymore. There's other reasons why they occur. And there's re there are reasons like, you know, intimidating an 18 year old in a death penalty state to plead out to life without parole, which by the way, life without parole has an extremely low exoneration rate, about 1%. You have a better chance to get an exonerated from death row, basically. And um, it's difficult because life without parole is a crutch to abolish the death penalty, but they abuse the sentence still for people like Michael. I, I mean, he's he was 18 years old at the time, again, under the influence, not even on his, you know, by his own accord. And, and so you have to take things like that into consideration. That's where we need reform. I mean, we need to protect some of the young people that, you know what I mean? Um, you put somebody in jail at the age of 18 
and you're going to tell them that they're going to spend the rest of their life in, in prison and die in prison. It, you know, it's um, especially in a case like Michael's where there's questions about others that were involved in that case. So th those are the most striking things to me. And Melissa said that he was intimidated. I felt to mention that his lawyer brought a guy that was on death row to come talk to him the morning that he wanted to plead um, not guilty and actually asked to go to trial. He brought a guy in to intimidate him into taking a plea deal that morning, as well as going to his mom's house probably within that week before telling her, you need to tell your son goodbye, because if you don't, then we're going to, the state's going to kill him. And his mom made the attempt to try to get him to play the way that they wanted him to by saying, we'd rather have you alive than dead. And um, so those were the tactics they used. So he really didn't have a fair chance at this because they were able to put a story together and put the narrative together to make it fit so that they could put the blame on Michael. And um, Daniel said they thought Michael wasn't going to get very much time because he was only 18 at the time and they don't really give young kids, uh, you know, harsh sentences, but that's not true, you know, and Michael didn't know how the legal system worked and he did take the time to believe in his lawyer, thinking his lawyer was going to help him, but really his lawyer had no intentions. I've spoke with his lawyer before and he told me he did not have a defense for him. His only defense was that he was 18 years old and didn't deserve life without parole. That was all he prepared to do because he didn't have the time to come and talk to him. And it seems like that's a big component at this conviction, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, so who is this attorney? Um, his name is James Carl Bowen, and he was out of Sepulpa. Michael's case was in Lawton. So that was about a two and a half, three hour drive between the towns. And he was actively working other cases. I mean, his lawyer did tell me he had, a, you know, quite a bit of a caseload in that it was kind of a problem. Uh, granted, he did have some help from, um, I guess, another guy named Lynn Birch and um, a woman named Wayna Tyner. Uh, I think she had just graduated from school at the time. So, you know, it was new to her too. She didn't quite know what she was getting herself into taking on a murder case. Um, but I do know that Michael's legal team dropped the ball on him. Do they kind of recognize that this guy shouldn't be in prison at this point? Well, what his lawyer told me um, was that I feel like the part that Michael was being there because of the felony murder rule, that he does not need to be there for the rest of his life. So if the state was going to charge him, then he should have already been home at this time. And that he definitely feels like Michael deserves some kind of help. And that if we could figure out a way to get it back into court, that he himself as well as um, the other two people on the team with him would be more than happy to get involved. But his lawyer is retired also at this time. Right. Um, and, you know, in, in some areas, uh, there are other options because there are conviction review units and all sorts of other uh, look back mechanisms, but I'm guessing in Oklahoma, that's not the case. Not at all. No, they, there was some proposed legislation not this legislative session that, that is going on now, but last year's long session, as a matter of fact, by one of the conservative representatives in Oklahoma, Representative McDougall, for a conviction review unit, but for, for only for death penalty cases. But it, it, it stalled in committee. They didn't really do anything with that legislation. I, I saw it make an appearance again in, in this session, but I, I don't know how far that's gonna go. But 
um, yet they are one of the states that do not have any conviction review units at all yet. Oklahoma County is uh, the number four county in the country for executions. Yeah, and Oklahoma itself per capita executions. Uh, you know, about the top. Yeah. yeah, at the top. So yeah, it, it's kind of a perfect storm here. Yeah. So, you know, as, as we wind down on our time, you know, in your ideal world, what would you like to see happen here? I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously you'd like to see him exonerated somehow, but, but in terms of the steps needed to to make that possible, um, you know, if if people are listening to this at home, uh, you know, what would you ask of them? Um, I do ask that people would follow his social media sites. He does have a uh, website with more information about his case at www.justiceformichael.org. Um, that people can go on all the links to, um, like I said, social media is there. His he has a petition also that's linked to the page. I do think that if people knew more about it, that they could understand a little more because I always look at it like it's not fair. What if me and a friend went somewhere and they committed a crime and now I'm just as guilty as you are and I had no idea. So maybe if people can kind of just look at it from that point of view and understand that Michael does deserve to come home. I don't feel like Michael was served justly because if you have two other people serving a 20 year sentence who's home, then I do believe in my heart that Michael should have been home with those people at the same time. They have the actual shooter. He is incarcerated. They found the murder weapon on him. Um, he as well was serving a life without parole, but unfortunately he as well was drugged with PCP against his knowledge also. And so that's what ended up happening is that someone lost their life behind that. So it, it seems that, you know, what, what's happened here is kind of twofold. One is that you have the felony murder rule, which, um, you know, out here in California, um, in recent years, we've passed legislation um, that actually, unless you're the actual shooter, um, you're not necessarily uh, going to be found automatically guilty of murder if you're in the middle. But the way felony murder uh, works for, for those uh, listening in the audience um, is that under the uh, if you are committing a, a, a felony, um, so, you know, you're committing a robbery or a burglary or some kind of crime and somebody dies, uh, then instead of just uh, saying, well, you know, um, it was an accident or um, something happened or the other guy did it, uh, you're also, um, you know, guilty of, of murder as the result of committing that underlying crime. So kind of the classic example is that two people decide to rob a bank uh, one guy's in the uh, getaway car and then something goes wrong inside and the guy who went in to actually rob the bank shoots and kills one of the tellers. Then the guy driving the, the getaway car is actually on the hook for the murder just as much as the actual shooter. And what California's done is say, well, that's not necessarily fair because sometimes, you know, these people are 
not even involved. They're not even at the scene. They're they're like on the other side of town. They didn't intend to kill anyone. Um, they they shouldn't necessarily face face that kind of crime. And so um, the way fourteen thirty seven works in California is that if you're not the actual killer and you uh, aren't a major participant and uh, you didn't act uh, with what they call reckless indifference to human life, uh, then then it's not felony murder anymore. And so, you know, um, the involvement of Michael in this case, uh, you know, in California, he wouldn't even be on the hook anymore. Um, the second factor, uh, which is actually in some ways more interesting, is, is the fact that he was unknowingly drugged uh, with, with PCP, which m- makes his involvement in the underlying crime even suspect. Um, and then everything else comes into play. So you got, uh, you know, these kind of shady games that the prosecutor played with the uh uh, with with the confessions and with the fact that he got uh, uh, he was a minor participant in this and he got on on the hook uh, with for the uh, strongest penalty and then you got the ineffective assistance of counsel which is probably the most serious problem here that I can see um, you know his attorney didn't help him any here. Um, you know, yeah. I, I mean, pleading him to that, not doing an investigation and yeah, I get it. You know, um, you know, if, if you can't afford your own, uh, defense and you're in a state like Oklahoma, uh, you know, you're not going to be in, in good position because you're not going to get uh, a strong defense. And then the other problem of course, is that he needs to have, um, some kind of legal team that can go in and and reopen this case, um, and, and that's probably going to take you know a strong letter writing campaign. There's not just the Innocence Project these days. There's all sorts of organizations that um, now investigate wrongful convictions, and it's just a matter of getting the right letter to the right person at the right time. And I think you guys are going about this the right way. You know, get publicity for this case, get sympathy for Michael, uh, get other people involved, and then hope that uh, somehow, some way, the right person happens to see this case. I got that about right? Yeah. All right. Well, we're almost out of time here, but I wanted uh, to to get kind of both of your closing thoughts and also, you know, make a make a pitch to people that are listening or watching this as to what needs to happen next. Well, I do ask that people that are listening, that they do please get on board, support Michael with this. If you uh, have it in your heart to write him or to write to someone about him, but I do feel like it'd be okay to, you know, write to Michael. I can provide that information on um, his website where they are able to hear his side of the story. It's easier to hear it from me, but to actually hear it from someone who's actually suffering from the injustice, it definitely affects people differently and to get behind him in this and ask that he is given a, what I guess we'd say another opportunity at life because it was taken from him at 18 from the state for no reason. Yeah, and what's that uh, address again for people who want to log on? Uh, www.justiceformichael.org. 
www.justiceformichael.org. Hopefully, mm -hmm. when we run this, uh, we can have somebody post it on the screen for us as well. Well, okay. I want to thank you guys so much uh, for your advocacy and for standing by Michael. Uh, he's very lucky uh, to have you guys in his corner. Um, and thank you for coming on our show and, and sharing a little bit about Michael's case. Thank you. You Thank you for allowing it. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking about the wrongful conviction of Michael Gaines. He was convicted at the age of 18 back in 2003, so almost 20 years ago. Uh, he's almost 40 now, um, which has been a huge chunk of his life, of course, but not too late to do the right thing. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.